welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. This week, I wrote about and covered Mitch McConnell and the Republican Party and how they hold all the cards on the impeachment matter. We'll talk a little bit about that more in today's show. And we'll also talk about my second column this week, which was about how CNN orchestrated a hit on Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And that piece I covered toward the background. And then in the newsletter, I had sort of a long rant about the impeachment politics and also the politics of that Bernie hit that CNN did during the last and debate that we have before the Iowa caucuses and how those two intertwine with each other. So if that interests you now or after the show, you can sign up and get it in your email inbox at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. That's just the easiest way to get my columns and analysis to you. That list isn't for sale, so you don't have to worry about any more spam. And finally, if you like what you hear here or enjoy my written work, make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get those podcasts. Those five-star reviews help listeners and readers like you find me in the iTunes algorithm, and I always look forward to hearing from you guys in the reviews or just reaching out to me in general. All right, so we're going to jump into this week's show. This week I'm covering two main things, as I mentioned just now. One is the CNN hit on on Bernie Sanders. I've got some audio clips that I wanted to go through that just kind of walk through what exactly happened. You may have seen them, you may have not. I found them endlessly fascinating because it's a a very specific example of media bias that's playing out in the news right now. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the impeachment trial that's going to start this week. That'll be the second subject. And then before we hit either of those, I have a quick hit that I wanted to talk about. I don't want to go too in-depth on this just because uh, the the actual event in question is going to happen tomorrow, and I'm going to do a quick hit on this the March for Gun Rights that's happening in Virginia. I have some friends who are involved with that to help, and they're, I don't have anybody that I know that's putting it together, but I do know some people who will be going to Richmond or they've been going to some of the events that are happening on a local level in places like Virginia Beach and elsewhere. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. If you're not in Virginia, you may not be have heard about it, but if you are, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. So those are the topics for today's show. And we'll jump right in. So the first thing was the quick hit, and that's on the Virginia March for Gun Rights. Like I said, I've got some friends who are going to this. And it's it's gotten complicated because, in generally, it, you would just look at this and you say, okay, these are people marching on Richmond, and they're uh, marching in support of the Second Amendment and their gun rights overall because the state has elected a group of Democrats who are all going to get together and push together much stricter forms of gun control than what is currently in the state. And if you don't know anything about Virginia, Virginia has this sort of awkward balance of power right now where the bulk of the state, if you just look at geography, is deeply red. It's full of rural places, and then you have the southeastern part of the state, the um, the Virginia Beach area, Norfolk. It's got the the Navy base there, the dry docks, and it's generally just a redder area, very supportive of gun rights in general. And then you go up, and you get closer and closer to D.C., and the deepness of the blue that you find in Virginia just gets overwhelming. 
And from right now, Virginia has largely just become, the northern part of Virginia, Nova, has become a suburb of D.C. And so that has become this power center of the more progressive part of the state. And as they've gained more power throughout the rest of the state, they are pushing through, uh, think, just pushing through policies that just five, ten years ago you wouldn't have even thought imaginable now that they've taken power of all branches of government in the state. So that's the political balance of things right now. And so you have Governor North, Ralph Northam, who is governor, and his plan is to push for um, stricter gun control. So I'm not going to go into depth on what he's proposing and all, all those different things, but what it has triggered is a backlash in the rest of the state. And the backlash has led to, and really just legally, just talking generally legally here, it's, it's this fascinating sanctuary movement. So you've heard of sanctuary cities in, in regards to immigration where these liberal and progressive cities have said that they will, not, they will not obey or follow or comply with federal officials in enforcing certain immigration laws, specifically, you know, rounding people up and deporting them. And so they declare themselves sanctuary cities for these people. And for all basic intents and purposes, I think there there is a legal thing that they can follow there because the federal government cannot force the states to do anything like that because the laws that are being enforced are federal laws, not state ones. So that's long been a fight on the right and the left between whether or not these immigration sanctuary cities are a good thing. Well, on the counter side in Virginia, what has happened is that you've what has been what has popped up are sanctuary cities for gun rights. So what gun owners are doing is that they're going to their city councils, they're going to their county seats of county government, and they're saying, "Hey, we want to be a sanctuary city or county for gun rights." So if the state passes these laws that are far more stricter, which we think are unconstitutional. We don't want you to enforce them on a local level. So it's a little bit different. You don't have the interplay between federal and state. Instead, in this case, it's, it's a fight between a state power and local municipalities. It's sheriffs and city commissioners and mayors saying that they will not obey the laws that the state is projecting to put out. To my knowledge, nothing's passed officially yet. Everything's just still in up in the air. But that being said, that's this backdrop. You have Democrats who have taken over the state, and they've said that they're going to do all these things that they want to do for a long time. Uh, they've passed some of these, some of these other things they haven't. Uh, I may do one thing on one of the things they passed was the Equal Rights Amendment, and I, I honestly don't know why they did, because I, I think that's... It's not just that the it's not it's a substance waste of time. It's that it's a legal waste of time because the equal rights amendments that had a timeline, a timer on it, basically, and it went off back in the '80s. So I just I don't see any point to that. But they passed it along with a bunch of other things. But their main focus has been guns, and so you have them wanting to pass these laws. You have these. You have you know a one rule of one party over the state, and then you have the rest of the state on the local level reacting negatively to it. So that's sort of the background here. And now, I believe it's Monday, so when you when you listen to this, it'll be uh, when you come out. I'm recording on a Sunday night. 
Uh, my friends are saying that there's going to be a big march on Monday in Richmond to protest and to march and say, we want our gun rights protected and we do not want these laws passed over the rest of the state. So that's a long way of just saying that's all of the backdrop there. What's further complicating things is that there are, there are unsavory parts of the state or not even part of the state, just there are white nationalists who are trying to attach themselves to this in order to get get attention and gain notoriety. I also saw there were some videos of, of Alex Jones, who was running around in the area, the conspiracy theorist. So there's just a bunch of weirdos who are trying to jump onto this too. And as a result, the media wants to color this narrative and make it seem like these wackos are the main thrust of this event, not gun rights, or all gun rights people who are going to be there are also in agreement with white nationalists or Alex Jones or any of these others. So it's a big mess all the way through, and Governor Northam has used this to declare a state of emergency and ban guns at the Capitol. And there have been some arrests, too, so there's not exactly been empty threats here. There have been legitimate threats that he's been able to push back on. But the main thrust of the event is not about these people. It's not about the white nationalists who wanted to create another Charlottesville, perhaps. It's about the people who are out there to support their gun rights. So what I'm hoping for is that it'll be a peaceful event that Although the media will try to push one form of a narrative, they won't get because people will just be there assembling peacefully, requesting something of their state government. I don't know where it'll go in the end just because there is this standoff between the local municipalities and the state government. But I also don't want a very good gun rights movement to turn into this chance to say that there's more neo-Nazis and white nationalists around any corner. You don't want this to be another Charlottesville. You just want this to be another friendly chance for you know just people who are supporting their Second Amendment rights to go out and say, this is what we would like from our government. That's all you really want there. You want them exercising their First Amendment rights in support of the Second Amendment. So I'm hoping that this happens. I'm hoping this happens peaceably. It's it's weird in some respects just to see where all these things fall now because if you look at the history of gun control overall, it has a pretty racist background. All of the white nationalists and the the uh, Confederacy types back in the day used gun control in order to control minority communities to keep them unarmed so that they could do whatever they wanted. That's why you had some of these lynchings that happened on the countryside. If you had unarmed people, you could go after them easier. So they were always very pro-gun control. If you go back and you just study the history, you find that over and over again. And you see this these progressive groups, they still say that they want gun control. They're just using a different language. And I... Personally, I think you should have the right to defend yourself, no matter what your race. And for some of these minority communities, it's even more imperative, especially if they're in areas where they need that protection. So, regardless of anything, that's it, it's become a bit of a mess just because you have these competing interests here. The media doesn't want a peaceful assembly of gun owners who are just there to request something from their government. They want to tar and feather it as something far worse. 
So I'm hoping that they don't do that. They don't get the chance to do that. There's already been some attempts to do that. There were some reporters with NBC who were making that exact claim on Twitter, and so they ended up having to delete their tweets just because people started pointing out how actually inaccurate they were. So pray for those people who are going out there. You want a peaceful assembly of those people. You want them to have a safe time, and you also want, if you're a gun rights supporter like I am, you also want this to be a successful event. So that's a little bit longer than the quick hit that I was anticipating, but there's a lot there. If you don't live in the state of Virginia, and I did for a little while, you may not know all the politics and background that's going on there. But it is very interesting when you're looking at sort of this quasi-sanctuary city argument that they're making on a state and local level. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays overall over a longer period of time. So that brings us to the first the first big topic that I wanted to talk about, other than that, which is the last debate before the Iowa caucuses that CNN held. And this debate was just a mess. I didn't bother watching through it because I was too busy watching at the time Titans highlights because I was hoping we would go to the Super Bowl. That ended up happening. Even still proud of the team, but they didn't make it. So what happened during this event it was mostly boring. If you go back and watch through all the clips, nobody really said anything interesting or made any moves. It's really just about trying to make it to Iowa and not sink yourself at one of these events at this point. You want to gain traction, but gaining traction at a debate at this point is pretty hard. The only thing you're really going to do is sink yourself by doing something extraordinarily stupid. So what you need if you need something that's going to happen, is that you need the media to do your work for you. You need them to make a story or generate something to allow you to do something instead of trying to generate something yourself. You remember, so like Kamala Harris, she generated her own news story at the very first debate by attacking Joe Biden on the issue of segregated school busing. That got a lot of headlines, and she wasn't able to back it up, but that was her generating something. So if you can't do that at this stage, you need the media to do it for you, and that's what CNN did on behalf of Elizabeth Warren. So if you didn't see it, the big story that CNN broke on behalf of Elizabeth Warren's campaign was Elizabeth Warren's accusation that at a private meeting in 2018, in December, Bernie Sanders told Elizabeth Warren that a woman could not win the presidency. He didn't think it was possible. That's what Elizabeth Warren said happened at this one-on-one private meeting, which has been reported about for a while. We all knew this meeting took place, but until now, over a year later, this is the first time anyone said that that exact comment happened. And Warren is saying that Bernie is sexist as a result of this and that she's a victim. So that's the accusation. That story broke earlier in the day before the debate. And then during the debate... They questioned Bernie about it, he denied it, and then they pivoted to Warren and basically served her up the best fastball, the best, or basically a T-ball that was easy to hit, and which also further accused Bernie of doing this very thing. And I'm going to play the clip here because I, I could explain it, I've written it, but it's really just best that you hear it. And especially note, everybody else noticed what happened too, because there's some laughter in it. I do want to be clear here. You're saying that you never told Senator Warren that a woman could not win the election. That is correct. 
Senator Warren, what did you think when Senator Sanders told you a woman could not win the election? I disagreed. So that's how CNN served this up. They asked Bernie, he had a longer answer too, but they clarified and asked him point blank, did you say it? And he says no. And then they ask Warren, what did you think when he said that? And that's when the laughter kicks in because everybody sees what's happened. They've just ignored what Bernie said altogether and are now just pretending as if he actually said that. It's a logical fallacy in and of itself because it's it's a loaded question. It presumes the truth of what you just said. It's like going up to a guy and asking him, you know, how, what did you think when you stopped beating your wife last week? Well, that, that presumes an awful lot there, especially if that's not what happened. And in this case, the only evidence, the only evidence that we have that, Elizabeth, that this actually happened is Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren account. Over a year later, just before the Iowa caucuses, she's claiming that this is what happened during that meeting. And we've had multiple people report on it. I mean, there's been New York, in one of my pieces, I quote New York Magazine. There have been plenty of other people on the left who have, quote, have quoted and have sources about who what happened at this meeting. And this has never come up until just now. And CNN is pretending as if Warren's claim here is the gospel truth. And you hear everybody in the audience. When they hear it, they, they just start laughing, partly because of that and also because of the question. It's ludicrous on its face. If a person denies that with the force that Bernie Sanders does and you're going to the other person, the natural thing to, to ask would be, hey, he denies it, so what do you say to that? It's not, oh, he denies what you said. What did you think when what you said happened happened? It's just ludicrous on its face. And I think, I think the way that you can tell that this was a setup and it was planned by, by Warren and potentially CNN here, you have to remember with CNN, they, they leaked questions to Donna Brazile, and she in turn got those to Hillary Clinton during the debates. So I, I just literally don't trust them here. And that, that's not entirely what happened, but... When you just look at the events of what they were saying about what happened in 2015 and how they helped out Hillary Clinton, that, that's basically what I believe happened. They're effectively helping Warren out here. Warren is the media favorite. And so after this exchange happened, you have the end of the bait when they're all going around, and Elizabeth Warren charges up to Bernie Sanders. CNN just so happened to leave the mics on. And charges over to him and accuses him of calling her a liar on national television. It's a bizarre exchange, simply bizarre. And I've, I've boosted the audio on this because it's not them directly talking in the mics. It's a hot mic moment. So I'm going to play that clip here and boost it so you can hear what they're saying. I think you called me a liar on national TV. I think you called me a liar on national TV. Let's not do it right now. You want to have that discussion, we'll have that Anytime. discussion. You called me You told me. All right, let's not do it. I don't want to get in the middle of it. I just want to say hi, Bernie. Yeah, good. Okay. I forget when I listen to that, that my, one of my favorite parts of listening to that is, is Tom Steyer coming in at the end, who's also running, by the way. You kind of forget about him sometimes. But he comes in at the end just to say hi to Bernie. 
not to Elizabeth Warren, just to Bernie. You just want to say hi, Bernie. Like, okay, okay, we just avoided a fight here between myself and Elizabeth. You know, but whatever. Anyway, crazy moment there. But given given the way Warren's campaign Warren's campaign works, that just seems such a planned moment. And given her past, I don't trust that she's telling the truth about this at all. Warren's lied about just about every part of her life. She lied about her ethnicity when she was dyeing her hair black and pretending to be a Native American in order, and then called one of the few, one, the only minority law professor at Harvard when she was teaching there. She lied about why she got fired from her first teaching job, saying it was because she was pregnant, when at the time she didn't say that at all. She was saying that she liked the job and she had other opportunities she was wanting to pursue. She lied about Medicare for All. She couldn't tell the truth at any point. It, it was so obvious that she couldn't tell the truth on that that it became a meme. People began pushing her on the stage to say, "Hey, how are you going to? How are you actually going to pay for this?" And then when she would skip around and dodge and not answer the question, they would just say, "You didn't answer the question." It's one of the reasons her campaign sunk the second time. The first time was when she lied about her ethnicity. One of my favorite moments of the campaign so far was when Elizabeth Warren went on the Breakfast Club with Charlemagne the God and his crew, and he asked her about this point blank. Point blank, he asked her, "Why did you do? Why did you do this?" And she gave an answer that was dumb on its face. And he just looked at her and he said, "Oh, so you're like the, the Rachel Dolezal of this, claiming to be a Native American, which is exactly what she was." I know, and she likes touting this Boston Globe report that said, "Oh, I didn't gain any benefits from this. I did everything on my own merit." But she was claiming to be a minority law professor. At Harvard, they had no other minority candidates. Think about that for a second. Harvard had no non-white people on their staff, and they were claiming that Elizabeth Warren was one of them. Real life, folks. That is real life right there. That happened. So that's Harvard for you. And Elizabeth Warren. She also lied about school choice. She claimed that she sent her kids to public school. She did not. She sent them for a partial part of the time to a private school. And when, when it was a black, it was a it was a it was a group of black school choice parents. They met her. I'm gonna say it was in Ohio, but it was probably somewhere else. They uh, they they cornered her about this, and they asked her why she didn't support school choice, and why she, if she didn't support it, why she sent her own kids to a private school. And she said, "Oh no no no, I sent my kids to a public school," and just lied to them right there. It's on tape. This is Elizabeth Warren. She is a brazen liar, but the media loves her because they see her as one of them. That's the thing about a lot of these candidates. If you want positive media coverage, you have to make the media think that, especially on the progressive side, they have to think that the candidate is one of them. That's why they like the Clintons, that's why they like Obama, and that's why they like Warren. They don't really care for any of the others. They can deal with them, but they want Warren, even though no one else in their right mind likes her, and so they're willing to push this lie on her behalf. One of the craziest things I saw in defense of this was on MSNBC. They were sharing a clip from the show AM Joy, and she had on a quote-unquote body language expert. And just as a lawyer, I'm going to tell you, those people are nonsense on stilts. They don't know a thing. 
And they brought this person that are there to say, oh, yeah, no, Bernie was absolutely lying. If you look at his body language and the way she confronted him was so bold. And if you you could think that if you want to, but this was a just a brazenly set up. This was a planned hit by Warren and a planned hit by CNN. They knew what they were doing. They were trying to hit Bernie Sanders. This was an absolute political hit. And this is real media bias. This is CNN trying to step in, along with some of the other news stations, and swing a primary for one candidate over another. They're actively trying to influence the primaries to knock Bernie Sanders out. And I understand why they're doing it. Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat. He's never been a Democrat. He is his own thing. He is a socialist, and he's always been outside the Democratic Party. He just happens to be running in the Democratic Party for president at this stage. And he's built a base of support. And what everyone thinks is that if you have Bernie Sanders here, the only way for Warren to win is to take Bernie Sanders' voters, combine them with her own small base of support, and surge forward into the lead in Iowa. No one on her side believes she has a path of winning outside of knocking out Bernie Sanders. And that's not only not happened, she's now sunk to third or fourth place, some places even fifth, and Bernie Sanders has reestablished his spot of holding anywhere between 15 to 18% of the vote. Bernie Sanders' support is a, that, that nationally and just, you know, it's a little higher, it's a little lower in some places, but pretty much across the board, his place is second place with 15 to 18% of the vote. His supporters are sticky and they stick with him, but they're trying to get them off of his, off of his, his they're trying to move his support to her or basically anybody else because they don't want him to win. This was true in 2016, and it's true of now. When the WikiLeaks dropped and showed the intra-party communications of the Democratic Party, they were all trying to figure out how they were going to stop Bernie Sanders. So this is real media bias here. It's not, you know, as conservatives, we talk about it all the time, but this is actually a form of it on the left where they're trying to impact the influence of the election. And it's weird to, you know, sit here and talk about that because when you hear people talk about what happened with Russia in 2016, they also tried to influence the election. But all they really did was post ads and get involved with memes and try to stir up dissension and just all kinds of, you know, hatred between two different groups. That was their way of influencing it, and they didn't spend a ton of money doing it. This is CNN doing basically an in-kind contribution to the Warren campaign on behalf of her to run a hit on Bernie Sanders. They see him as a threat, and they want him out of the way. Now, ultimately, I don't think this is going to work, primarily because Elizabeth Warren is not a likable person. Of the two people here, just who, who would you trust naturally? I think Bernie Sanders is wrong about absolutely everything. But he's truthful in what he says. He's wrong, but he's not going to lie to you about what he's going to do. In his Medicare for All plan, he is straight up about the fact that he would raise taxes, not just on the rich, but on the entire middle class, that that is the only way that he'll be able to pay for it. Now, I think he would still be short, but he at least acknowledges the reality that the only way to build a socialist system is to raise taxes on everyone and then use the proceeds of that to build a new socialist program that covers health care and all the other programs that he says that he wants to cover. Now, you can disagree with that all day long, and it's that's fine, but it's not a lie. 
It's the truth. Elizabeth Warren is dishonest about a long list of things. And now she just happens to come up with this story of a different version of what happened at this private one-on-one meeting between her and Bernie just days before just days before the Iowa caucuses and days before the impeachment trial starts when everybody has to shut up and leave the campaign trail. She wants us to believe that this is finally just coming out now. No. No, none of this is reality. This is Elizabeth Warren trying to get Bernie Sanders supporters to leave him and to tar him as a sexist and allow her to come off as a victim. That's a general theme with her. If you look through all these different instances where she's trying to do something, she wants to be a victim of some kind to be able to play that card where she's always the under, you know, the underdog minority. When in reality, she's not. She's a privileged white person from Massachusetts. That's who she is. But she wants to make you think she's something else, something less. I, I, just, I just don't see it working. Like I said, Bernie Sanders voters are sticky to him. They like him. If they weren't voting for him, they probably wouldn't even be voting in the Democratic Party. Warren voters are not like that. They're Democratic Party voters, and they will leave her over just about anything because she doesn't have a strong base of support. If you look at how she performs in her own state, she underperforms what you would expect just a stereotypical Democrat to do in Massachusetts. The Republican governor they have there is has huge approval ratings and is well-liked, and she doesn't get near the support that he does. So she underperforms just based on what you would expect a bottle of water with a D on its name would do in that state. And I don't think they're going to be able to remove Bernie Van Sanders voters away from him. And if they do try to shut him out, and this is the interesting part here, if they do try to push Bernie Sanders voters away from him, all they're really going to do is alienate them from the Democratic Party. It's not like they're going to move from Bernie Sanders to some other candidate. They're just going to alienate them. And you know who that helps out? It helps out Donald Trump. Because it reduces the number of voters who would vote in the Democratic Party. It hurts them up ballot and down ballot because they might vote for Bernie Sanders at the top of the ballot and they might continue voting down ballot too. So weirdly enough here, because they're so in the tank for Elizabeth Warren, and you can watch this as we move closer and closer to the February 3rd caucus dates, you'll start seeing newspapers start dropping their endorsements. And she should rack all of those up. You might see some for Biden and some of the others, but I expect the big ones like the New York Times, the Post, and some others to all endorse Elizabeth Warren at this stage of the campaign. That's pretty much what everybody is expecting, by the way. So I, I, I honestly think, I mean, at this stage, this all helps Trump because they're trying to push out a sex segment of the party that would vote for Bernie Sanders. They should just let him lose fair, fair and square. I don't think he can. I, I think his base of support, while he has a set low point, he doesn't have a very high point. He's never expanded his base. He pretty much stays between fifteen to eighteen percent. Some polls have shown him sneaking up in the twenty percent range if you get him in some of these individual states. But overall, if you just played this out, I would expect him, no matter what happens from here to the end of the nomination, he'll get between fifteen to eighteen percent of the vote, 
and in these states where you're sharing delegates, that will get him delegates in most of these places, which is going to make him, could potentially make him a kingmaker come convention time if no one is able to get a majority of the delegates. I'm personally rooting for a convention fight. I don't know if we'll get there, but that's what I'm personally voting for. We'll find out at the end of February whether or not that happens or not. And if Bernie, if Bernie, Bernie should attack this in my mind. This is like Hillary Clinton's emails. If he's truly about changing the system overall, he should be attacking this full front. He had a chance, actually, to take out Hillary Clinton straight up in one of the debates when her email and the investigation to her got brought up, and he schlepped it off and saying, oh, I don't want to talk about it anymore. I want to talk about these other things. An astute politician would have basically killed her on the spot with that because the moderators in that debate teed up a question to hammer her on her credibility, her integrity, and calling her a liar. And Bernie Sanders didn't do it. He's got another chance here, which I think he should take. If the media is going to go this far in, he should solidify his support and point out how unfair this is to the rest of the party that he's being treated this way. If you're really about burning it all down, you know, and you're going with the burn, you need to actually attack this full on. So I think this starts with Democrats who hosed him in 2015 and 2016, and they're doing it again, and I think he should go full on and attack all these people. So that's all I've got on that. When we come back from the break, we'll talk about the impeachment trial. And we're back. While I was, I took a break to, well, in between these two sets, And while I was recording, I looked down at my phone and had an alert, and it said, oh, the New York Times has released their their endorsement. I was like, well, I I just recorded this segment about who who, who I thought they were going to do. So I looked it up, and they did indeed endorse Elizabeth Warren, but they went further than that. They endorsed two people. They endorsed her and Amy Klobuchar. So it is... It is hilarious and dumb. I, I literally think this is what happens when you get some of these newsrooms, newsrooms who spend all their day on Twitter because people were mocking the New York Times prior to this and taking bets on when they would endorse Elizabeth Warren because it's been so obvious for so long that they were going to do this that I think they just said, um, well, if it was this obvious, we can't do the obvious thing. We need to do something else. Nate Silver had put in odds for their endorsement and said it was three to four odds that they would endorse Elizabeth Warren, five to one for Bernie for Biden, eight to one for Bernie, and ten to one he says they would endorse no one or multiple candidates or something dumb like that. And as he said, something dumb like that ended up winning that one. And I literally think it's just their reporters are so clued in and so always on Twitter that they got trolled by the Twitter mob into not just endorsing Elizabeth Warren by herself. So I can't wait to hear what her campaign has to say about this because it's kind of hilarious that they couldn't just endorse her outright. They had to throw somebody else in because they know just for a fact that she's unlikable. I haven't bothered reading it because I don't really care what it says. It just matters who they decided to endorse. And I don't think it's going to matter in Iowa either because... I just don't get the feeling that too many people in Iowa are going to use the New York Times as their main source of who they're going to vote for. I just, I mean, if you are great, you're probably one of 5,000. You've, I mean, it's Iowa. You've got about 500 events you go to and meet these candidates yourselves. They're all they're at all the state fairs, eating all the fair foods and all the fake fair foods, trying to show themselves to be you know a real person. 
But that's a whole other tirade. So the New York Times did do what we all said they would do. They endorsed Elizabeth Warren, but they didn't give her what she really wanted was a loan endorsement. They endorsed two people, and that's a joke. So with that, we'll talk about the impeachment trial this week. That is the other main story. I will note, you know, we're here talking about the impeachment trial that's starting this week, and it's going to dominate the news because if you're a newspaper or you're a cable TV news show... What else are you going to cover? It's an actual trial in the Senate. You don't get to cover this all the time. So they're going to go wall-to-wall with this. Again, I don't know why. We all know what's going to happen, and we all know why it's going to happen. And even though we all know on that, I think it's hilarious we're focusing on this, and Iran is now faded into the deep background. I mean, the media had everyone so hyped up that we were about to enter World War III that they crashed the select service website, the place where you sign up to make sure that the government can draft you. The media crashed that site. People began looking it up to see if they're going to have to get drafted because they had whipped people into such a frenzy. And I'm not going to forget that anytime soon because it was so obvious that that was not going to happen with Iran. Neither side wanted war. Several diatribes. So back to the impeachment trial. We're going to get a trial this week. It's going to start. I think the last thing I saw was that it was going to start on Tuesday. We also got a vote on the new NAFTA deal, which arguably is going to be more important, and people will consider that more in their vote in in November of 2020. So McConnell doesn't have, Mitch McConnell doesn't have the votes to just vote this thing down. There was a theory floated that he might have the votes early on to just deny this thing outright before it hit the door, and I don't think he has those votes. I saw Lamar Alexander, the senator from Tennessee, I saw that he was against that, and I'm sure if he is, there are several others who are just going to want this to play out in the normal uh, procedure of having a trial, so I suspect that will lose Although, if you are a Senate Democrat and running for president, you probably want that to win so you can jump back out on the campaign trail. One of the pure chaos things I kind of mildly wanted was to see some Democrats vote for this just to say, this is a joke and I want to go run for president. But I don't suspect they'll do that. They're just going to ride it out and see what happens. So, McConnell doesn't have the votes to just shoot this thing down. But Democrats aren't going to get new witnesses, which they say they need for some reason, unless the Republicans also get to call new witnesses. So Republicans in the House wanted a long list of witnesses that they didn't get because Adam Schiff shot them all down. He said it wasn't needed, we just needed to focus on what he said was important. So now that we're at the trial, Republicans said, well, you said this was all we needed to make this in a, to make an important decision, so why don't we just keep it at that? And now Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler are saying, no, 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 no. We need more witnesses. We need to call these people who we refuse to call in the House in order to have a thorough investigation of what happened. And it's nonsense on stilts. That's why Nancy Pelosi held it out. She wanted these new witnesses. And Senate Republicans just laughed in her face. Mitch McConnell was going to the floor on a daily basis mocking her and mocking Democrats for what they were doing, and they deserved it because it was the stupidest plan ever. Now, the hashtag resistance, they all thought that they were going to get new witnesses at this trial. 
They, you see this if, if you watch CNN or MSNBC or any of the others like them where they bring on their so-called legal experts, and I do use heavy quotations around their legal experts because they routinely say things that I'm not sure that should, some of the things they say, I think they should revoke their bar license and not allow them to practice law because it's so stupid. But you hear that, you know, oh, we have this political leverage we can use to force witnesses, or you hear things like Republicans are violating their oath if they don't bring new witnesses or they don't hear this evidence accordingly, when in reality we know Democrats have all made up their mind. In fact, several of them, like Kamala Harris and some of the others who run for president, were openly saying Trump needed to be removed without hearing one bit of evidence. So if Republicans have violated their oath, so have Democrats. Neither side has. This is all nonsense. And their founders knew this when they wrote all this together. So you're not going to get new witnesses unless both sides get to call the witnesses that they want. And because Democrats don't want to hear from the witnesses that Republicans want to hear, they're not going to get the witnesses that they want to hear. And we're just going to go ahead. I think we're just going to see the evidence that the House put together, as shoddy as it was, and we're just going to roll with that. And Democrats are going to complain about this, but all their complaints are going to be on a procedural basis. If you'll notice here, Democrats are not making a substantive argument anymore on impeachment. They've flipped, and they've flipped to a procedural argument that everything is hap- that is happening here is rigged or it's not fair. They want a trial that happens the way they want. And if they don't get that, they're saying that the entire thing is rigged and they want an asterisk on the trial, which is utterly ludicrous. Trump is going to end up getting vindicated by this. The process will be stupid, and Democrats won't argue any substance throughout this. They're just going to say this entire process, this entire trial is rigged. And what that means, if you if you take that to its logical conclusion, if you what that really means is that if this is rigged, and what they did in the House was even more rigged because it's the only reason that it's here, there was a path to impeaching Trump. I've hammered this point over and over again. There was an absolute path to get a bipartisan consensus to impeach Donald Trump. Early polling showed it. There was a st- dark jump up, even among Republican support, who of people who said that they supported not just impeaching Trump, but removing him from office for what he did on the Ukraine call. It was not a perfect call. I know he keeps saying it, but it was not a perfect call. And if you looked at that support, you, you, could, you could imagine a path of getting an impeachment through both houses of Congress. It did not seem that far-fetched in the week or two that that event happened. But then, but then, Donald Trump was aided by the best thing in the world, and his name is Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler, who were given the task by Nancy Pelosi of creating the case to impeach Donald Trump in the House. And those two idiots cannot even get one Republican, not one, to vote for their articles. They, could, they, they refused to meet any Republicans in the middle to meet them halfway on finding witnesses or proposals or evidence that these Republicans wanted to see. And they refused to see or call any of it. And so that meant not only did they fail to convince anyone, they failed to convince people and convince Republicans who are retiring and do not like Donald Trump. They didn't convince a single one of them 
to vote for an article of impeachment. Now, you can say that Justin Amash counts here, but he's a libertarian and he left the Republican Party. He doesn't count anymore. And so they couldn't convince one, not one person. And so now they're going to take their case, which in which they were not able to find one Republican vote for in the House, they're going to take it to the Senate and say, oh, why won't any of you guys vote for this? Well, maybe we should call new witnesses to clean up the mess that we, we should have. And McConnell's not going to do that. Because the Democratic argument at the time in the House was that we do not need to hear anything the Republicans have to say. We don't have to meet any of their demands because we have the sole power of impeachment, which is true. They have the legal power and the sole legal power to do all of that. But what they didn't do is they didn't make the political case for impeachment. If you're going to impeach a president, you have to make two cases. You have to make the legal one, which is easy. And then you have to make the political case to the people and to the peop- members of Congress who are elected to that branch. You have to make those two cases. And Democrats never made a political argument for impeaching Trump. And so now they're suffering politically because now they have no political leverage in the Senate, to, and they're just going to get treated the way that they treated everyone else in the House. And Mitch McConnell and the Republicans don't have any incentive to help them out. So that's that's just that's the process that's the entire process in a nutshell. There was a path. Adam Schiff closed that path and he closed it quickly. House Democrats served up slop and expected a five-star rating on Yelp. And the Senate's not going to clean it up. They they absolutely will not clean it up. And so that means the the trial just the trial that we're going to go through it's delaying the inevitable. Trump's going to get acquitted at the end of this. So remember that. This trial is a joke because House Democrats decided that they just needed what they said that they needed. They didn't have to win over anybody else, and they were wrong. They were told that they were wrong about this, Democrats were, at the time, that they were making a mistake at the time, both when they voted and when they went through the committee process. So when they complain now, it's not Mitch McConnell's fault. It's their own. They had the majority in the House, and they had the task of making this argument, and they absolutely failed to make a convincing argument for why Donald Trump should be removed from office. When he accuses them of a partisan wish hunt, there's evidence that he's correct on that point, even though there's evidence that his conduct on the phone call was equally as wrong. Democrats managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory on this one because there was a path to victory on what something that they wanted on this, and they somehow managed to find defeat. It's utterly amazing to watch this happen. Donald Trump, for all his incompetence, he has even more incompetent political enemies. So you can take that and think about that for the rest of this week. That's all I've got for today's show. So questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute. And the newsletter goes out early Friday morning. We're doing that now again, so make sure to sign up for that and you'll get it the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help me out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, 
signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.